Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of April 2022 and this is episode 249. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Peter Walsh about his research into the Northumbrian daily newspaper, The Illustrated Chronicle, and the coverage and its coverage before, during and after the Great War. Peter spoke to me from his home in Washington, County Durham. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. Could you Thank start you very by, much indeed. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Okay, well, uh, I think it was the House of History, Four Stories by Muriel Maysfield, which my dad bought me when I was a kid. Uh, my dad always bought me books about either cricket or history, so that's been my two uh, abiding interests. Uh, as a 15-year-old, as a I think I watched The Great War in 1964, the television programme, uh, when I went to college, I read AJP Taylor and then a different Taylor um, and a loner Taylor brought me in some documents when I was teaching in Sunderland, uh, which were from the, the building of the South Hilton War Memorial. And that got us started as a history department, taking kids to, to France uh, to find men from South Hilton, uh, made lots of trips to France and I've taken my wife I'm a great husband. I've taken her to lots of places where men were killed, like Gallipoli and Berlin in this freezing cold, uh, France and Belgium, northern Italy. Uh, but basically, it's been about research on the men from Washington, Harriton and Usworth, the three parishes that make up Washington Newtown now. So as a retired chap, um, the, the lockdown provided a boon for me because it meant I didn't have to go out anywhere and I could sit at home and do research on the, on the Great War uh, and continue my interest in that way. Now, just for, for us illiterates uh, for geography, where exactly is Washington? Uh, it's um, midway. It's in what used to be County Durham and many people would prefer it still to be in County Durham. Um, but it's midway between Newcastle, Sunderland and Durham. So it's, uh, it's set up nicely in, in between all of those three big centres, if you like. Uh, but it's a town of 70,000 um, and is now part of uh, the large conurbation of Sunderland. Right. Well, let's move to your current research project. Can you tell us all about it? OK. Uh, we've all had that experience in First World War graveyards. I think those of us who go to France, the names that stick in your mind and, and the question about where did all these fellows come from? I can remember walking in the Travascus brothers in, um, in uh, Maple Copse, sorry, Flat Iron Copse Cemetery and the uh, couple of lads called Gunstone, uh, just names that stick in your head. So in lockdown number one, I'd said to my pal Gavin, do you fancy doing a spreadsheet of the Illustrated Chronicle? He said something like, I will if you will. And we had in the centenary years gone to Newcastle every week uh, to turn thousands of pages looking for photographs of men from Fatfield, Usworth and Washington. You're allowed to take photographs of those images. All the photographs now have been uploaded onto Flickr, uh, except for three months, which are currently being done. So we went off into the world of spreadsheet and um, 
obviously the, the point of this is to make all the information available to people. I've had a chap who's studying the Northumberland Fusiliers 8th Battalion, who I've sent a list of men in the 8th Battalion for whom there are photographs. And similarly with a lad uh, just the other day from the Royal Sussex Regiment. So you can supply numbers of photographs for a particular regiment or the whereabouts of those photographs. Um, and, and obviously you can also do the information about a particular village. So if you're interested in Chopwell or Silksworth or uh, Acklington or Chevington, uh, you, can, uh, you can use the, the spreadsheet to find all the men who were in the Illustrated Chronicle from those villages. So I think we need to know what the Illustrated Chronicle is. Could you tell us about this, this publication? It was printed 1910 to 1925, every day except Sunday, and it's to be found in the reference section of Newcastle Library. You have to ask for it, it's not out on the shelves. And in these days of health and safety, uh, the girls usually bring it out on a trolley, it being large and heavy. What you get is a bound copy, usually of three months, where the original papers have been printed on a backing paper so as to prevent uh, bleed through, I suppose you'd call it. The photos range from grainy, it could be almost anybody, to, oh, well, I'm sure I'd recognise him if he walked in the room, to some very clear ones. The Chronicle was first published by William Ord in uh, April 1910, a halfpenny for eight pages, and it was described as an all-picture paper for Northumberland and Durham, only the third of its kind in the country. Its politics would be independent, and though Mr Ord was the publisher, it was printed by the proprietor of the Newcastle Chronicle a paper that still continues. Setting a context for 1910, Mark Twain's death was reported on, reported, not exaggerated, it had actually happened. On the 23rd, it featured the cup final at Crystal Palace, Newcastle played Barnsley, it ended in a draw, Newcastle won the replay at Goodison Park. In a, a brief di digression, if I may, Billy Jonas of Washington could have been playing for Barnsley, but he turned them down to sign for Clapton Orient, now Leighton Orient. Billy was in the Middlesex Regiment Footballers Battalion. He was killed near Delville Wood in 1916. Bill McCracken, for fans of the offside law, was also playing. And if you're a fan of the offside law, you'll understand that comment. Graham White was attempting to fly from London to Manchester in April, uh, but he fell 60 miles short, landing at Lichfield. A remarkable feat, given that eight years later, aeroplanes would be dropping 200-pound bombs on cities across Northern Europe. By May 1910, the Illustrated Chronicle had grown to 16 pages uh, and featured Captain Scott and his race to the South Pole. So with the outbreak of war, was it good for business, so to speak? <laughs> well, I imagine so. Uh, in July 1914, it was 16 pages, the Illustrated Chronicle, still for a halfpenny. On the 30th, the headline noted that Austria and Serbia were preparing for a death struggle. On August the 3rd, the headline was The Most Awful War in History. They knew something about what was coming, I think. And then on the 5th, Britain at war with Germany. At what point people sending in photographs was discussed and developed? I don't know. I've never spotted an invite in the paper for people to do so. But the number of photos for 1914 was 500 for uh, the months of the war. While in January 1915, there were 400. Uh, in July 1916, it was up to nearly 2,000. And in August, as the casualties from the Somme were processed and fed through, there were 3,500 photographs of men who had been killed, were missing, were injured, wounded, whatever it might be. In 1917, uh, 
the chronicle was reduced in size to 12 pages and then down to eight. And there came a corresponding fall in the number of photos so that uh, the highest in the last two years of the war was 709 photographs in May of 1917. Why did people put their photographs into the the Chronicle? Well, I can only assume it was uh, to avoid the embarrassment of people not knowing that your husband had been killed or wounded. It was, I suppose, the same kind of impulse that uh, persuades people to use Facebook for or Twitter for announcing the death of their mother, father, wife, child. Um, It's not necessarily the thing that I do first to put the information on Facebook or Twitter, but people uh, get a lot of support, I suppose, by doing that. And that's the only reason I can come up with. And I suppose also you're showing that your husband is doing what everybody else is doing or that your son is doing what everybody else is doing, which is participating in this uh, in this war and serving his country uh, or serving her country in the case of the women, uh, as everybody was uh, being encouraged to do. My follow up question to that was, did people actually pay to put um, these photographs into the Chronicle? I, I'm not sure if they paid in the Chronicle. As I said, uh, while I was talking there, the, the Chesley Street Chronicle from 1917, I think, or 18, 1918, the Chesley Street Chronicle was asking for half a crown. And I think that's quite a lot, given that the, 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 the newspaper cost a halfpenny, and they were asking for half a crown to put print a photograph. No doubt they were short of paper, but clearly um, that would have been a lot to find for many of the people who had previously sent photographs in. The Chronicle, I've never found anything in the Chronicle that says send your photograph in and sixpence or a shilling or, or whatever. Uh, so I'm not sure if the Chronicle charged, but certainly the Chesley Street Chronicle did for the last six months of the war. And are the photographs just of individuals and how long after the war did it go on? Well, there are lots of photographs of action, uh, no doubt censored photographs, uh, but there are maps by the score, there are reports from correspondence. Um, and the Chronicle ran at 16 pages until January 1917. As I've mentioned, it was then reduced, presumably a shortage of paper. In February 1919, it returned to 12 pages. And by 1925, the last edition of the Illustrated Chronicle, it was 16 pages for a penny. And was now being published by H.M. Thompson because Mr. Ord had died in March 1919. The paper did cover his funeral, but included little about the man, other than that he lived in Harrison Place, where a six-bedroom terrace currently sells at £260,000, and he worked for the Newcastle Chronicle for 45 years at the time of his death. Um, he was described as a newspaper clerk uh, rather than an employer, so it seems a little odd that he's the publisher uh, of this major newspaper, and yet he's merely the clerk stroke manager. The last edition of the Illustrated Chronicle... Um, June the 16th, 1925, and readers were informed that extra copies of the North Mail had been sent to news agents and that they should presumably buy that instead. Did you find any sort of omissions or errors in your research uh, of these photographs? Well, the photographs are grainy in some cases, um, very grainy in some cases, but there would certainly be errors in the process of dealing with so many photographs whether by those sending them in or by the compositors who had to deal with this stuff every day. And, of course, by Gavin and myself, especially where the brilliant anticipation skills of Excel spreadsheets can add an initial here or there and make Harris into Harrison 
and green into greener. Uh, it's a bit of a minefield, so you have to be very careful uh, when transcribing. There are, in addition, page folds to cope with, so some names are illegible. But it's a testament to the skill of these, I assume, men, that when you come across a name that appears to be impossible, it often turns out to be accurate. It 95%, 98% turns out to be accurate. Private James Cobbledick of the Royal Naval Division, Private Charles Haberjam of the Northumberland Fusiliers, anyone? I'd like to think that the compositors of the Illustrated Chronicle were as dedicated to their task as the adjutant of the six Northumberland Fusiliers who listed virtually throughout the war the names, ranks and numbers of all of those men in his battalion who were killed, wounded, hospitalised, etc. Make sure you get those names correct, lad. It's some mother's son. And what other information does the Chronicle give? What, what sort of, what, when you look at these photographs, what type of biographical information or background information do you get on the images? What you normally get is a surname, an initial or given name, and again, uh, a rank and a regiment and a town or village. The spreadsheet that we've done has added the page and the month. So, for example, uh, Private Smith, March 1916, page three, rather than you having to look all the way through 1916. And remember, people uh, didn't send the photographs in immediately. So a fellow who was lost on the 1st of July 1916 and went down as missing, his photograph might not appear until perhaps even the start of 1917, as people waited to see if their men turned up. Uh, It also appears to be aware that they might have been transferred to a different regiment or several different regiments or to different battalions of the same regiment and then back again. So, um, as I say, typically you get Private uh, Smith of Sacriston and the Thumbland Fusiliers and then missing, wounded, killed, signed up. Uh, If I've added or altered information because we found out later it seemed to be incorrect, our best guess is... Uh, then I've used red ink. So it's a mixture of red ink and black ink, the black being what was in the chronicle and the red being what uh, Gavin and I added. There are lots of photographs of family groups or church groups. Um, It became kind of a test of family patriotism, I think. Oh, look, the bottoms is from us, but they've got seven lads signed up. Can we beat that? Uh, There there were seven bottoms from uh, us, in fact. There are also church groups, sports teams, company groups, the photographs were sent in by relatives, and those relatives uh, and your correspondent may have had less than full understanding of the names and details of various battalions and regiments, which, of course, have a variety of names. So you could find somebody under the Green Howards, the Yorkshire Hussars, Alexandra Princess of Wales' own, the Yorkshire Regiment. It's a bit of a minefield, but uh, the more you do it, as ever, the easier it gets. And what's the um, sort of geographical spread of the Chronicle? Where, where, what, what areas of the country did it cover? It's basically the, a, a large triangle from uh, Berwick down to Middlesbrough and across the west to Carlisle and Cumbria. The Chronicle claims 35,000 photographs. Uh, the spreadsheet covers 29,402, of which some are duplicates and some are triplicates. Uh, And that's presumably because as the photographs uh, rolled in, they found it difficult to cope with the numbers. And of course, some relatives would would send a photograph with news of a man having been wounded and then a further photograph of a different incident, another wound or his capture or his death. And that's why you get these uh, double and triple entries. 
There were men whose deeds and exploits were included who were not local. So uh, Victoria Cross winners and what were considered to be well-known figures. Young Dan Doe, the boxer. Uh, Jack Johnson's in there. Uh, Eldridge, uh, oh, I've got second name. Eldridge, who was the world 60-meter sprint champion. Um, noblemen of significance, the Earl of Annesley, Lord Chesham, Viscount Elrington, Lord St. Germans, Lord Wellesley, who, it was noted, was saved by his watch. Uh, they were often serving in the guards or the hussars, etc. And I often do think that uh, it must have been an interesting experience for Tommy McVeigh of Washington, a coal miner, listed alongside Lieutenant Lord Northampton and lots of other toffs in the list of casualties for the horse guards in 1914. I'm not sure that the um, Lieutenant Lord Northampton would have understood exactly what Tommy was saying all the time had they been working together. Um, and you've got Clive Montague Joycey of Blenkinsop Castle, one of the, the, the big Joycey mining family up here, and the Honourable Sidney James Drever of Ford Castle, the third son of Lord Joycey. Uh, he was killed in 1916. And does the paper actually cover sort of people who used to live in, in the area or the broad area that it covers and moved abroad to either to serve uh, in the empire or um, moving or emigrating to America or Canada? We've got 122 Australians on the list, uh, 10 New Zealanders, 190 Canadians, uh, 14 South Africans, um, and often their, their, their local village, so Ashington uh, or Silksworth or Chopwell, those villages where they had um, left and gone off to live uh, abroad in the empire, they're included as well. And are these photographs unique to the Illustrated Chronicle or were they actually sort of for franchised out to other publications? Uh, right, that's really hard to say because local soldiers sometimes appeared in, for example, the Chesterley Street Chronicle or the Durham Advertiser and then the Illustrated Chronicle a couple of weeks or three weeks later. But sometimes it was the other way around. They were in the Illustrated Chronicle first and then the local newspapers later. So it's hard to say whether the papers passed on inform information to and from one another. And I'm not sure whether relatives would be sending uh, photographs into two or three different papers um, or indeed whether families were expected to pay for example, the Chesley Street Chronicle announced in July 1918 that information about local lads would be printed free, but that the printing of photographs would cost half a crown. Another question that arises is why families might send in the photograph of one of their dead sons, but not another. Other families were what you might call reliable, and so there were some men, as I mentioned before, who had more than one entry in the different years as they were wounded once, twice, three times, and you, you get that wounded brackets, three, close the brackets, uh, showing that they had been uh, damaged three times. And have you got any idea of when some of these photographs were taken? Is there any sort of, you know, you know, when they have studio poses, is it possible to actually date when these images are taken and when they actually appear in the, uh, in the Chronicle? No, not in terms of the date, but I guess that one of the first things a soldier did when issued with his uniform was to go to the local photographer and have some images made for his wife and his girlfriend or his mother. And so the photos would normally have been posed, like you say, in some of, uh, in front of some artificial backdrop, backdrop, his hand on a chair, standing smartly. But the Chronicle only printed head and shoulders shots. So it's only when, as has happened, you get access to a copy of what is clearly the same photograph but provided by a current family member as the postcard when you get the backdrops uh, and can see what they are. 
Looking in local trade directories like Kelly's and Ward's, we can find dozens and dozens of local photographic studios, places like Cornforth and Consett, Spennymoor, Gateshead, Felling, Croop, Jarrow, and then the pit villages up in Northumberland, at Ashington, Hurst, Choppington, Bedlington, as well as the leafier parts like Annick and Whitley Bay. But there are plenty of photographs of, as well of fellows who are just in their civvies, you know, typical uh, miners, flat cap with white scarf around the neck, sometimes with a pipe or smoking a wood, woodbine. Uh, and on a website called Carte de Visite, there are the names of thousands, thousands of local photograph photographers. So, many of the officer portraits are marked as Lafayette. Uh, this was a studio founded in Dublin by James Stack Lauder, who was invited to Windsor in 1887 to photograph Victoria. The company opened a studio on Bond Street and saw uh, the photograph of Lieutenant Colonel Morant of the 10th DLI, whose diaries are now in Durham archives. That's marked Lafayette. And quite a number of other officer portraits are marked Bacon. So in September 1916, Lieutenant Barkas, who was presumably willing of the DLI, has his photograph marked as Bacon. The same month, Captains Streetfield and Hessler, Fennec, Clinnell and Waite. You can almost spot the officer names. Uh, interesting feature. Uh, also marked Bacon. In Washington, two of the photographers were Ralph Little Elliott and Joseph Robinson Elliott, brothers, I think. And thus it was that Little Bolton Elliott of the Royal Engineers was photographed by his father or cousin and was later killed by shellfire in 1918. It appears to be very male-dominated. Were there any photographs of women? There were, yeah. Lady Rosemary Leveson-Gower, possibly the sister of the shrimp Leveson-Gower, who was an England cricket captain. Certainly the name is the same. She was mentioned in dispatches in January 1917. Catherine Carruthers won the military medal for bravery. Sister Boag, working at Armstrong College, which is now Newcastle University. And Sister Margaret McNally, who the paper pointed out was left a fortune by one of her patients. Sister Thompson of Shotley House, VAD Hospital, and Nurse Barnes from Carlisle. She was awarded a Belgian medal. Sister West of Gosforth War Hospital, Margaret Ellison Duckers of Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service. She died in Salonica in May 1918. So there were those nurses. But also you got photographs of Mary Hamilton, Louis Burton, Wilhelmina Hamilton, Annie Pape, Kitty Wilson, and there were fundraisers who clearly got uh, similar kind of coverage uh, as the soldiers did. And do you um, find that there's lots of sort of photographs of local men who joined local units, you know, such as a local PALS battalion or local TF? Does your research research throw any sort of um, light to confirm that? It throws up some interesting anomalies. For example, a pit village just outside Sunderland called Silksworth you might have expected the largest number of men to be in the DLI or the Northumberland Fusiliers, which are the, the, the local regiments. But in fact, of the numbers on the spreadsheet, uh, Somerset, Somerset Light Infantry had 41 entries of men from Silksworth. Uh, the DLI had 43 and the Northumberland Fusiliers 20. So more men joined the Somerset Light Infantry from Silksworth and I have no idea why. One thing I was just been wondering is, are there lots of soldiers who actually are called Tommy Atkins? Obviously, Tommy Atkins was a, a name, I think, derived from a poem or a piece of literature by Rudyard Kipling and used as a generic sort of term for soldiers. Do you find this name yeah. at all coming up in the in these photographs? Well, the medal rolls, um, 
record 155 Tommy Atkinses in the British Army, of whom six only were killed in the war. In fact, our 20, 29,000 names include one T. Atkin, one T. Atkins, who was actually serving in the Australian Army, and nine T. Atkinsons. So Rudyard would have been better off to call him Tommy Armstrong, of which we have 18 on our spreadsheet, it being a, a fairly popular local name. And is, does your um, spreadsheet, is it particularly local? I'm just wondering, obviously, it, it's, it's based in, in the northeast of England, but does that mean that you're, the people who appear in that are generally drawn from that geographical area? Yeah, they, generally they are. The vast, vast majority are, and the names resonate up here. You know, the highest accolade you can give somebody in the northeast is to call him a canny lad. Well, there was a John Canny. There was also a William Cranny, who was nearly a, cranny, a canny lad. He, um, uh, William Cranny, of course, was the name of the doctor who invited the, invented the miner's safety lamp prior to George Stevenson and Humphrey Davy. He was from Marley Hill. We had a bead Farrell, captain in the East Yorkshire Regiment. Um, as, as Northumbrian as you can get, George Robert Stevenson Foster. We had, uh, if you know the local song, we had a John Ganning, 218 Scots, 102 Woods, three Rhodes, and seven races, but they weren't from Bladen, they were from Usworth. So you have the Ganning, the Scots, the Woods, the Rhodes, and the races. There were 356 men from Bladen, and there were three Geordie Ridleys who wrote the song, The Bladen Races. Other northern names, uh, we had a Lieutenant Hoy, Hoy over here, uh, and we had a Huey Hoy. Um, the names sometimes uh, evolve. We had um, not quite a tune army, but we had a, an E and a B tune, one in the army, one in the navy, both from Grange Villa. We had 24 Cuthberts as given names, who may or may not have been saints, but just the one bead. And as far as Geordie Lad is concerned, believe it or not, on the spreadsheet, there are 1,399 Geordies, George. Um, there were no Mackums, of course, because Geordie was the name for everybody in the area, Northumberland and Durham. The Durham Advertiser had a, a weekly column called Geordie Says. The idea of Mackums hadn't been invented. So, Peter, what are you going to do with all this uh, data once you've <laughs> compiled all the uh, entries in the Chronicle? Are you going to produce some stats and put this information uh, on the World Wide Web? Right. A statistical survey isn't possible until I'm finished uh, doing all the, uh, the additions, but some comparisons can be made between various villages. So, uh, Washington, uh, which I'm very interested in, and Chopwell. Chopwell was... Uh, known and still is known as Little Moscow. There's a Lenin Street in Chopwell and a Marx Street. And the communist flag was flown over the council offices in the great general strike of 1926. So both of those, Washington and Chopwell, have a population of about 8,000, of whom about 1,100 men served. And yet there are 409 Chopwell men in the Illustrated Chronicle and only 207 from Washington. Was there somebody from Chopwell? Was it socialist stroke communist Chopwell where there was somebody responsible for sending the names in? I, I really wonder about that. Um, a bit like the, the Northumberland Fusiliers 6th Battalion War Diary where it was incredibly efficient and you wonder whether that's a function of somebody in that battalion or somebody in that village of Chopwell 
being determined that their men will be remembered. Now, talking of determinism, were there any cases of what you might call nominative determinism, where somebody's name sort of indicates their sort of occupation or um, characteristics? Was Private Lively just that? Was Private Pow taken prisoner? Was Private Delicate of Shotton as delicate as his name suggests? Were the Shells, Private Adam and George from uh, Holy Island and from Chevington Drift, were they always destined to join the army? Not to mention the fact that there were 11 swords in the Northumberland Fusiliers. And where we have swords, clearly we would need shields. There are 29 shields on the list. In modern day terms, we had nobody called Jackie Artillery, but we did have six cannons and we had private armory, six private cowards. We had a private Robert Conchie from the King's own Royal Lancaster, who died in Iraq and is on the Basra Memorial. I once went to Gallipoli with Peter Hart and at the airport at Luton, we met Frank Sargent of the paratroopers. He was a sergeant, so he was Sergeant Sergeant of the paratroop regiment, and he came to Gallipoli with us. Um, and then you, you wonder about uh, Lieutenant Major Booth, who played for Yorkshire and England, was one of Wisden's cricketers of the year. Uh, he's buried at Sayre Road. Private Major of the Northumberland Fusiliers, the 4th Battalion. We had a Corporal Major and a Lance Corporal Sergeant and a Corporal Sergeant. It just... The names, uh, you're constantly uh, coming up with new thoughts and ideas about the names. And how are you going to end this tour of Northern names? Well, I'm going to cheat a bit. To me, they were all bonny lads and lasses, despite the fact that Tom Bonny of Pelton, William Bonny of Pelton, they're not listed in the Illustrated Chronicle. Neither is their third brother, Richard, who was found hanging in Plum Wood by P.C. Walton's son. P.C. Walton was attached to Lambton Castle. Richard had served, been discharged, and obviously was damaged by the war so badly that he committed suicide. So these bonny lads and lasses, they were struck down by an apocalypse of a type the world had never seen. And many, many of those that weren't struck down had the war in their heads forever. So to end, I'm going to end with my four horsemen of the apocalypse that these lads and lasses lived through. Samuel Horseman of the 10th Northumberland Fusiliers died in November 1916. He's named on the Menin Gate. He came from Buckingham Street in Newcastle, which is where I used to park my car to go to the match and a little urchin would say, I'll look after your car for 50 pence, sir. What he meant was, I probably won't scratch it, but I might. And I certainly will if you don't pay me the 50 pence. Joshua Horsley, Corporal of the 11th Northumberland Fusiliers, won the military medal. He was from South Shields. John George Horsley, Silksworth, Somerset Light Infantry. Alfred Horsfield, 447th Field Company, Royal Engineers, DCM, MM and Bar. And then what happens after you've completed this project? Right, I'm taking a, a copy to the Illustrated uh, Chronicle in Newcastle Library, who will put it on their website or at least make reference to it. The Northeast War Memorials Project will make reference to it. And obviously, it'll be on the uh, website for the www.mp.weebly.com, which is the Washington War Memorials Project, uh, and on which you can find lots of information about it. So the idea is it's available for everybody, and people can use it in whatever way they choose. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. 
Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.